John chapter 6. Verse 44. Once again, brethren, let us hear the word of God. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word. Now, brethren, thus far, God's Word has shown us that man is radically depraved and that this is a condition that man has inherited from Adam because of the fall in the garden. We continue with this uh, stream of thought as we uh, take up once again our studies in the doctrine of grace. And uh, I repeat, especially for those who were not with us the last uh, time, that radical or total depravity does not mean that each and every person is actively as wicked in thought, word, and deed as he can be. It means that sin has corrupted every part of his being. The mind, will, emotions affections, and body. Now, he is dead in trespasses and sins. His understanding is darkened. His heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, full of evil and madness, and that from which all his evil thoughts and acts proceed. And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart are only continual or only evil continually, and wicked from his youth. These are all things that we've seen laid out plainly for us in the Word of God in our study thus far. And because of this, man is unable and unwilling to do what God requires. Unable and unwilling. Now this is sometimes referred to as total inability. Now when we speak of man's inability, I want to give you at least three things that we don't mean first. Once again, those that uh, do not hold what we believe the Scriptures teach here uh, very often uh, either uh, ignorantly misrepresent us or have never carefully considered what we're actually saying. When we speak of man's inability, we're not saying that man is unable to do certain natural good things. Now what I mean by that is man is created in the image of God, and though that image is corrupted by sin, the image of God still remains. Now there are, from a human perspective, things that sinful men and women do, that are virtuous and worthy of commendation. One of the things that we could point to in in recent past are those who valiantly uh, ran back into the uh, the towers of September 11th to save the lives of many 
And uh, there were many professing non-believers among those who professed to be believers. Certainly from our perspective, this was a good and commendable thing. <clears throat> we're not saying that men who are not Christians are unable to do certain natural things that we would consider to be good. <clears throat> Secondly, man is unable, we're not saying that man is unable to do civil good. Men are able to keep the laws of human government. They don't do it well. Some don't do it at all. But some are able. <clears throat> and they can be motivated by different things. Selfishness. Sense of duty. Uh, out of a strong sense of duty. Or fear. Uh, men don't speed. Some of them. They can withhold themselves from robbing a bank. Or from lying in a business deal. Thirdly, when we speak of man's inability, we're not saying that man is unable to do certain external religious good things. Men can attend on external religious duties and even sometimes make great sacrifices which appear to men as good. And I say that within the realm of professing Christianity as well as outside of it. There are those who have done remarkable things. If you read the history of the Jesuits, you would be quite surprised to see some of the extraordinarily brave things they did in the attempt to bring their understanding of, re of religion uh, to foreign countries, many of them enduring unbelievable sufferings. And we can look at men, and we can look at women throughout the history of the world and see them doing, in the name of their religion, whether it be professed Christianity or other religions, certain things that once again we would say are commendable and good things in these realms. So, what we mean when we talk about man's inability is that we are declaring along with Scripture that man is unable to do spiritual good according to the Word of God. He is unable to do spiritual good according to the Word of God. He cannot do anything which fundamentally meets the demands of God's law. And why? Because even as the Pharisees, who had an external conformity to the law of God, even though men may have that external conformity, without faith it is impossible to please God. So we may have external conformities, even to God's truth at certain levels, but unless it comes from a heart of faith 
and love towards God is ultimately not spiritually good. We may sit back and say, well, it looks good to us. But we cannot look upon the heart as God does. Man is fundamentally incapable of spiritually changing his love for sin and self. That's what we mean when we say that men are uh, spiritually unable or when we speak of uh, a total inability. Man can do nothing to change his wicked nature. He may by great strivings and enormous acts of will conform certain of his external practices to a higher standard of morality than other people. But that is not the same thing as having a heart that loves the living God. We cannot give ourselves new hearts. We cannot change our love for sin and self. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. What's he talking about? He's saying that fundamentally the Ethiopian cannot change something that is his character, something about him that is his nature. Same thing with the lever. His nature cannot change. And he says, and, and those of you that are accustomed to do evil, you cannot change that about yourselves. You may have an external reformation of certain activities, but you cannot change your love for yourself and sin. This is why the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No man can come to me. That's the title of our study this evening. No man can. The word there, can, is a word of ability. Man is unable because of his wicked nature to change himself spiritually. So we want to look at that under two heads this evening. The reasons man cannot come to Christ and the only way that man can come to Christ. <clears throat> well, let's consider then the reasons that man cannot come to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ here speaks explicitly. Uh, John chapter 6 is one of those remarkable passages in the New Testament that if uh, those who do not agree with us would sit down and carefully exegete, I don't see how they could come to a different conclusion regarding what Christ is saying. It is inescapable that the Lord Himself is not bending over backwards to get men to, quote, make decisions. He stands before them and is telling them the truth, and he's explaining to them their own wickedness and unbelief. And he says to them here, stop murmuring among yourselves, 
Verse 44, no man can, no man is able to come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Well, let's consider first the conditions as to why this is true. Why is it that men are unable? And we're going to begin to tie in some of the things that we've looked at in our last two studies. This is a, this is a progression of thought. For those of you that have been with us, uh, I trust you begin to see how these things are beginning to come together. If you've not been with us, uh, I can urge you to get the, uh, the last two studies, and you'll see that there is uh, something of a flow of, of thought here. <clears throat> we want to consider man's conditions. We've looked at some of these verses, and there are a few uh, new ones uh, that I have uh, added to uh, for our consideration this evening. The first condition, why men cannot come to sin, is because they're born or come to Christ, is because they are born in sin. They are born in sin. They do not, men do not become sinners. Men are born sinners. And we've already looked at that. But David said in Psalm 51, as he grieves and mourns over his wretched uh, rebellion with Bathsheba, as he repents before God, and as we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit opening his own heart in repentance before God, he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Why did I do this wicked thing? I don't point the finger at someone else and blame them. I can only look to what I am by nature. I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Secondly, man has a, a deceitful heart. This being born in sin speaks of the fact that he has uh, something fundamentally wrong with him. Again, we've looked at these passages. I simply remind you of them. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21 For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And Jeremiah 17.9, the classic passage, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man is not simply injured. Man, to the very core of his being, is stained and corrupted by sin. It is his, his essence. It is the very thing that controls all about him. If you could say it this way, control central is polluted, corrupted. He's born in sin. He has a deceitful heart. He cannot trust nor know his own heart. That's why men cannot and will not come to God. They are unable. There is a thorough, a pervasive inability. Thirdly, he does not understand. Numerous passages we could go to for this, but we'll simply look at these two again to refresh our memories. Romans chapter 3, verse 11 
A says, there is none, none that understandeth. Now, brethren, stop and let those words sink very deeply in. Holy Spirit, come and help us to lay hold of these very things. If men are incapable of understanding the things of God, how can they possibly come to that God? They will not. Because they cannot understand. A verse that we'll look at a second time this evening, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. The very core of his being is darkness. He's cut off from the light, the illumination of God's revelation. Even when he picks up a Bible and reads it, except the Spirit of God open his eyes and his heart, he cannot lay hold of anything here that will change him. Right. That is why Paul goes on to write, Beloved brethren, neither can he know them. There's the word. Ability. Neither can he know them. He is unable to perceive spiritual truth. Because they are spiritually discerned. This takes us to the issue of him being dead in his trespasses and sins. He is spiritually dead. Alienated from the life of God. Separated from him who is life. Because he cannot know them. He cannot come to Christ. He will not come to Christ. It's foolishness to Him. Fifthly, or fourthly, <coughs> excuse me, His heart is blind. Once again, this is the, that inner part of man. The essence of what he is is created in the image of God. Ephesians 4.18 says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance, the ignorance that is in them because, and there's the, there's the issue, because of the blindness of the heart. Man is not in a dimness. He's in darkness. I cannot recall whether I've used this particular illustration here before. Forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I think it still bears repetition. As I was once in a studio a recording studio that had been built as a multi-million dollar facility. There, was, there were no windows in it. 
It was closed up to be uh, entirely used for the recording of sound. Uh, there, were, there wasn't a crack of light anywhere in that place except man-made light. I was in there once when the lights went out, uh, the man-made lights, when the power died. And, and I will have to admit, that's the darkest thing I've ever been in. It was the first time in my life I'd heard people say before, oh, it was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. <laughs> I don't know if anybody says that anymore, but I, uh, I, that, that very thought came to my mind. And so I, I put my hand right up there, right in front of my face. I couldn't see it. And I said, well, how, how about that? That's why they say that. I'd never been in that kind of darkness ever in my life. And it was, it was an oppressive darkness because there was no shine of anything. There was no reflection anywhere. Every bit of light was utterly cut off. And the, one of the men there in the studio immediately said, Everybody, don't move. And, of course, the command was there because your eyes couldn't adjust. You couldn't see anything, no matter how long you stood there. And to try to walk around in that would have uh, ended up with people tripping over a fabulously expensive recording equipment and hurting themselves as well. Man is spiritually in that kind of darkness. The truth can stand directly before his face. He cannot perceive it. By nature, we don't believe that, brethren. And even those who profess to think, if I just tell this guy just one more time, he'll get it. I'll say it a little louder. I'll say it a little softer. I'll weep a little this time. But then you can take a blind man out at noonday in July in Louisiana or Florida and turn his eyes up toward the sun. He cannot see a shaft of light. Men will not come to Christ because their hearts are blinded. They're not damaged, injured, or slightly inconvenienced. They are in utter darkness. Fifthly, for these reasons, he does not seek God. That's why the scriptures can say so powerfully in Romans 3.11b, There is none, there is none that seeketh after God. <clears throat> Now, brethren, this is not a popular doctrine. Even in so-called evangelistic churches today, the vast majority of them are more influenced by Pelagianism than by the Word of God. <clears throat> there is none that seeketh after God. He is blind. He cannot understand. He's spiritually dead, separated from God. <clears throat> Born in sin. And brethren, 
possessed of a heart out of which every wickedness flows. Men in that state will not, cannot come to Christ. I remember this doctrine being gingerly taught in a church where it had not always been clearly taught. And I was not the teacher at that time. But a man stood up after a few verses had been read and this point was being pressed. And he stood up and he said, Wait a minute! You're trying to tell me I didn't have anything to do with my salvation? He was beginning to understand the implication of what was being said here. And the amazing thing is, it didn't humble him. It made him angry. Now that's either severe ignorance, which hopefully will be conquered by the Word of God, or a religious man who's still in, in darkness. And you can read him those verses a, a thousand times over, and he'll still get up and say, What? Are you trying to tell me I didn't have something to do with it? Our pride is so monumental that we want to hold on to at least to a little piece and say, Well, yeah, at least I said yeah. And he didn't. One of the things that angered Martin Luther toward Erasmus was that at one point in Erasmus's book on the freedom of the will, he said that this issue really wasn't all that important. And Luther said, it's absolutely vital that men know their condition for them to understand the gospel. <clears throat> Sixthly, men are possessed of a mind not subject to God. This is another reason they will not come. They will not come because the carnal mind, the unregenerate mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Brother, do you hear the words? It's the same word of ability. Neither indeed can be. This is so important for us to lay hold of. And I trust that we do. Lord, have mercy that we do hear your word. The carnal mind is set in hostility against God. Why? It is not subject to the law of God. It doesn't want to do what God says. Not from the heart. It may do it because it wants a blessing. It may do it because of fear. Don't want to get blown up. Don't want to get condemned. But not out of a heart of faith. And this is what pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to please God. And a mind that is not subject to the law of God and cannot be subject to the law of God 
is certainly not going to come to Jesus Christ in and of himself, of itself. Because men have minds that are not subject to the law of God, they are slaves to sin. There's no other option. There's righteousness and there is unrighteousness. There is holiness. There is ungodliness. John chapter 8, verse 31, our beloved Master said, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered Him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. Never. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant. It's the word for slave. The slave of sin. Men that are slaves to sin. And it is a willing service. It is a willing slavery. Will not come to Christ. The very idea of being a slave means one who is not free. Now we could go further, but I trust at least with these specific declarations of Scripture, men born in sin, born with deceitful hearts, because of their deceitful hearts and wicked, they do not understand, they are blind. They do not seek God. Their minds are not subject to the law of God. Because they are slaves of sin, they will not come. The Lord Jesus Christ says, No man, no man can. No man can. Come to me. Now what are the results then of these conditions? What are the... What are the results of these conditions? Well, first, the Lord Jesus Himself said that He cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. And brethren, this is one of the most profound portions of Scripture because the clearest exposition of the new birth in all of the Bible is not given to a hooker is not given to a drug addict is not given to a bank robber but given to a religious man I say unto thee except a man be born again he cannot he is un able to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because man 
is born in sin with a deceitful heart that does not understand, cannot see, because it does not seek God and because it's not subject to God, and because men are slaves to sin, even when they are wrapped in the robes of the highest form of works religion. They cannot enter God's kingdom. They will not. The Pharisees refused to come to Christ, did they not? Why? Because they were in this condition, even dressed in their religious robes. Second result is that men in this condition cannot receive the Holy Spirit. John 14, 17 says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot, there's our word again, unable, cannot, no ability, cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Why can it not see him? Because the things of the Spirit are foolishness to him. He's blind. He's deaf. He's dumb. He's dead spiritually. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. He cannot understand the things of God. This is the verse we read, and I said we would return to the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can, neither can he know them. You see, when we say inability, we're not just coming up with a clever theological term. We are expressing what the Scriptures are saying over and over and over again with the inspired choice of words that the Holy Ghost has given unto men. He cannot, he cannot, he cannot. He cannot say Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now, he's not saying that men cannot utter those words. Of course, people say them all the time. Lost people can say them. He's not saying that they can't utter those four words. What he's saying is that no one can embrace that truth but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us back to our text. Men in this condition cannot come to God. No man can. No man is able except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. <clears throat> and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me, except it were given unto him by the Father. So important is this thought. The Lord Jesus Christ revisits it in the same conversation and says, Now this is why, this is why you need to be hearing me. I can tell you why you don't like all of this talk about me being the bread of life. I can tell you why you don't like what I'm saying. Like I can tell you why a great number of you are going to leave my discipleship before I finish this, uh, this particular discourse. Because you can't.
can't come to me except the Father draw. Now, brethren, who was the greatest evangelist that has ever lived? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who would say, well, you know, you've got to get the fish in, you've know, you got to take the gospel, and you've got to bait, it, bait the hook this way, and bait the hook that way, do everything you can to get the fish. The Lord Jesus Christ, the consummate fisher of men, stood before them and said, I want it to be clear. You can't come to me except the Father. Draw. What kind of evangelism is that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't trying to get, quote, decisions at this point. He was actually winnowing. <laughs> but if you read the entire discourse, you see him saying harder and more intense things, things that are more difficult for them to understand. At each level, he ratchets it up just a little bit more. Why all that? Well, it's, it's recorded for us so that we will realize man's desperate condition. They stood before the bread of life. Oh, give us that bread! That's what they said. You've got that bread? Yes. I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. I came down from heaven. Oh, no. No. This is, this is Mary's son here. Now, we know who you are. He said, I came down for heaven, from heaven. They murmured at that. Instead of falling at his feet, they said, no. No, we don't buy that. And brethren, it is the very same today. It has never changed. The living Christ himself can stand before men and say, I am he. And they'll go, no. I don't buy that. Why? Because of all the things that we've spent all this time talking about. Man in his natural condition is blind and dead and will not come. He is unable. Now, there are some objections to this, of course. I'll only look at a couple of them and I won't spend a lot of time on this. But there are those who would say, well, now look, such a doctrine encourages a delay in responding to the gospel. Now, you tell people stuff like that, you're going to let them off the hook. You know, they'll just say, oh, well, you know, what's the point? The very fact is, brethren, that when the Spirit of God comes and He begins to deal with the sinner, the very thing he needs to know and understand is that he can do nothing for himself. The very opposite of the objection is true. When the Spirit of God makes men recognize that they don't have the magic key called free will or my decision, they must cast themselves utterly on the mercy and the grace of Christ. Secondly, and we'll deal with this particular question a little bit more when we deal with the will, God willing, starting next week. How can, man, how can God hold man responsible for what he's unable to do? Now, I've been asked that question several times in my life. 
I've read it in books. No doubt some of you have as well. To see, first of all, what we have to recognize is that God does not deal with man according to his ability. He deals with men according to their obligation. There's a difference. Man was created in the image of God. He was able, Adam had free will. If you want to argue for free will, Adam had one, so to speak. And man, as created in the image of God, is obliged to love his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Adam's uh, tragic plunge into rebellion was a moral choice that affected every one of his children. And God still deals with them on the basis of their obligation to Him. Men are responsible to God whether they are able to come or not. He's dealing with them according to what they were created to be. Now these are difficult issues. I understand that. Nonetheless, it doesn't change man's obligation. Men should repent of their sins. Men should flee to Christ. Men should love and obey their God. They will not. They cannot. For the issues we've already discussed this evening. Let's let's close with this thought. You say, well, if all of this is true, what hope do men have? That's the greatest question that we can pose. What hope do we have? The answer is simple. The grace of God. That's man's hope. Man's hope is not what he's able to do. Man's hope is not what he's able to figure out. Man's hope is to be found in the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Everything about the truth throws us upon the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was He. Until men come to the clear recognition that they have no hope in themselves, none, they'll always find something to fall back on. But when they see that they cannot even help God, Save them. There is but one thing to do. Hope, believe in the promise of a God of grace. They won't do that. Except God draw them. This is what the Lord Jesus says. No man can come to me except, and that wonderful word except, brethren, immediately throws open the glorious gates of heaven and the grace of God. Accept God. Accept God the Father. Draw Him. Notice, it is written in the prophets. The Lord Jesus Himself appeals to the glories of the new covenant promise. 
Jeremiah 31 through 34. 31, verses 31 through 34. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Who is that? The Lord Jesus makes absolutely certain who that is. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Men in their darkened condition, men who have no hope in themselves, men who are dead in trespasses and sins, must be made to know it. And we can't dive into their hearts. But brethren, we can tell them the truth of God's Word. The Gospel doesn't begin with, Oh, God just loves you. Because that in and of itself does not win men. They love themselves too much. And very often people that come simply on hearing that in the modern, weakened way that it's often presented get people who are coming for psychological relief, not sinners who are fleeing to a Savior. Brethren, the grace of God is what we preach. And we must tell men their awful condition so that we might set forth the glories and the beauty of a Savior who truly saves in mercy and grace. He rescues. He doesn't help men save themselves. Is this an important doctrine? Brethren, it's foundational of the Gospel. We live in a day that says, Oh, don't say things that hurt people's feelings. Oh, don't make people feel bad about themselves. I was actually invited once to speak to a group, I will not mention the name, but it's a, it's a well-known parachurch organization that ministers to young people. And I was literally told by the leader of the meeting, he took me aside and he said, Now, <clears throat> We've got a lot of lost people out here. So don't say anything about hell and about how bad they are. That'll turn them off. Just tell them that God loves them. I say to you, brethren, rarely, but in the most magnanimous mercy of God's grace, is there ever a sound convert with that way of thinking. And it certainly wasn't because of that thinking, but somehow or another someone preached enough of God's Word and the Holy Spirit pierced someone's heart to make them realize their desperate need of Christ. But I say to you, brethren, the Gospel today that is all about making people feel better about themselves saves no soul from hell. We must tell men their desperate plight. We must in mercy and in grace as those who have been rescued ourselves plead with men regarding their darkened condition praying that the God of mercy and grace will make them see 
and will instruct their hearts and draw them unto Christ. And He receives all the glory. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.